Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to Him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on His head as He reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to Me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have Me. In pouring this ointment on My body, she has done it to prepare Me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Years ago, I read a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by a man named Stephen Covey. The first one is to be proactive. The second one is to begin with the end in mind. He said we need to put first things first. Effective people seek for a win-win. They seek first to understand and then to be understood. They synergize, which is getting other people involved in the process. And they sharpen the saw, which means keep yourself sharp, kind of renewal. Well, I was thinking about that the other day, and the main reason I was thinking of that is because of number two. It says, begin with the end in mind. And as I was reading through Matthew in chapter 26, we're seeing Christ coming up to the cross. And he's headed to the cross to be, to be put to death, and then he's going to rise again from the dead after that. And so we're seeing kind of the other end of things. We're seeing the end of really what was all included in this one gift of God. And so what I would like to do this morning, and I would like to contemplate Christmas, but I would like to do it with keeping the end in mind. As God sent forth His Son into the world, that was the beginning of His gift. But even in our look through the Scriptures, we find that He was beginning with the end in mind. He had an end goal. Jesus being born into this world was not the whole gift. It was just the beginning of it, to which had a much greater purpose. 
And we see that in, in many uh, places throughout Scripture. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so as they're announcing the birth of this child, they actually kind of reach forward in their pronouncement because a, a baby is not the Savior. This baby will grow up and do what needs to be done to become our Savior. And so you can tell that even at this announcement at the very beginning that it has an end goal, that there's a reason that this baby is special. Except for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Jesus would have just been another ordinary baby born. Not that any baby or any birth is ordinary, I know that. But he would have just been one more among billions and not the extraordinary Savior that he is. Luke, uh, also in chapter 2, verse 34, it's talking about uh, when Mary and Joseph come to the temple and they bring the baby Jesus and they have him circumcised and everything. It says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so Simeon, when he blesses the child and speaks to Mary, he again looks down through time and he says, this child is going to accomplish some amazing things. And he details those a little bit. And then he says also to Mary, a sword is going to pierce through your own soul. This is going to cause you some agony. So even right there at the beginning of Jesus' life as a human being, there's look toward the end. In the epistles, we also find the same perspective. When we look at the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was found in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And so there's his birth, but it doesn't stop there. It quickly connects his birth to his death and resurrection. It says, "...in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The cross, it does not happen without the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ is not significant without the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, really, God, when He did this, He did begin with the end in mind. The whole thing is kind of a package deal as our gift from Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's talking about His being born as a man. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And so really, when we celebrate this Christmas season, we're looking at the end as well as the beginning. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ that unto us is born this day in the city of David, a Savior because of what He would accomplish for us in His death. So I think it not unwise to keep those things connected together very much as we celebrate this Christmas season. In verse 24 in this passage, it says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. In other words, as He was born into this world, there was so much more planned. There was this whole end game, this whole end ministry of the death of the cross planned as He was coming into this world. And we see that throughout this passage. In verse 54, it says, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 
And so just as it did in the beginning of Matthew when it was telling about his birth and the protection, it continually showed how that fulfilled prophecies that God had spoken of hundreds of years ago in the past. And he fulfilled those prophecies in Jesus' birth. He's continuing to fill those prophecies in Jesus' death as well. And then in verse 56, it says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So as we celebrate this Christmas season and we're considering Jesus' wonderful gift to us, I see that uh, spread abroad throughout the chapter 26 of Matthew in the sense that Jesus was born into this world for a reason. In fact, we sang that reason in a song uh, last week. We sang a song that was entitled Born to Die. I remember years ago, Lisa and I were newly married and we were living out in the state of Virginia going to a little church called Battlefield Baptist Church which doesn't sound like that great of a name for a church, but it was surrounded by battlefields from the Civil War. We were in Manassas, Virginia. That's why. We were at this little church, Battlefield Baptist Church, and and they put on a cantata that year that was entitled Born to Die. And it was it was impacting to me. I, remember, I still remember it uh, to this day, some 30-plus years later. It just got me thinking. Here was a person that was, I mean, we're all born and going to die. But Jesus Christ was born into this world for the purpose of dying. Because his death would be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins so we could have eternal life. As we celebrate Christmas, we're connecting those two things and that entire life and what he accomplished for us in our salvation. We're seeing those in this wonderful gift. Now, as we look down through the passage, I would like to focus mainly on just one thing. I would like to magnify the precious gift that Jesus gave us as we look through this passage. That's what I want to do. There's a lot of things that you can focus on, but really this one thing that I'd like to focus on is just the the magnitude of the gift that Christ gave us in Christmas. To do that, I notice, first of all, within the passage that we see that there is definitely a context with this gift. As we look at the context of this gift, we find that it is an amazing situation that he's in. It started off in the passage talking about the synagogue leaders gathering together and trying to figure out how they can come and they want to arrest Jesus by stealth. I think that that was maybe some of the least of what he was experiencing at that time. Some of the other things that would stand out a little bit more is that we find that it's in a context of betrayal. This Christmas gift and this offering of his life, we would find that he would experience this through betrayal. As Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve that Christ handpicked to come with him and to be with him, this person that has been with Jesus for a little over three years, three years of of ministry, he's been there with him as he's taught. He's been there with him as they fed over 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. They, they've been there on the ships when Jesus calmed the, the sea. They've been there when to see Jesus walking on water. He's been there for all these different things. And he was a trusted member of the group. Now, I'm sure Christ had some insight into who he was and what he was about. But he was given the, the treasury. He was the money keeper for the ministry. And the Bible says that Judas would skim money out of that. And so he was embezzling from Christ's ministry as they were traveling around. And I think that that's part of the reason that he he was so upset about this lady pouring the perfume on Christ. Because he wanted that to be sold for a lot of money, which it would have been. It was about a year's salary for a common worker or a soldier. It was about what that was worth. But he wanted that sold for a lot of money and put into the treasury because then he could get his mitts on it. 
here we have this, this person that's going to betray Christ. In fact, as we read out the rest of the chapter, we find that after Christ rebukes them about the perfume issue, then Judas decides that's enough. There's not enough in it for him anymore. And he goes to make a deal with the religious leaders. How much will you give me to deliver Christ over to you? And he betrays Christ and does it in the most intimate of ways, going up and betraying him with a kiss. The one that I kiss on the cheek will be the one. Arrest him. Christ will sit down to to the dinner, to the Passover with him. He will say, the one that is dipping in the cup with me, that is just sharing this meal with me, is going to be a betrayer. And so within the context of betrayal, now, again, the reason that I want to point this out is because it magnifies the gift. Look at what Christ was willing to go through for us. As he was coming to lay down his life for us, he was willing to experience the betrayal of somebody that was close. Somebody that, that had been closely walking with him for these three years would hand him over for 30 pieces of silver. And he was willing to go through and experience that to give us the gift of eternal life. That's an amazing gift. Well, not only was it a, an ex, a context of betrayal, but it was also in a context of abandonment. Because he would go on to tell the disciples, he said, all of you are going to forsake. You're all like, like the prophet that says, the, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He says, all of you are going to betray me. And they begin to argue about that. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. All the disciples are saying, no, we will hold with you to the end. And Peter makes an astounding statement that he will, he will stay with him no matter what. But then Jesus goes on to say to Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And even before that, you know, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples, watch and pray. And he starts to pray. And it's an agonizing prayer. The Bible says that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. And so it was a stressful time. It was an agonizing time. And he's there with his disciples and he asks them to be praying. And when he comes back to them, you know what they are? They're asleep. And so he wakes them up and tells them, you know what? Be alert to be praying. And then he goes off to pray some more. He comes back. They're asleep again. He says, well, now you might as well sleep on. Here come the soldiers. Even when he's with his disciples, they're not really with him. They're not at this time when... When uh, he's going through this agony and this struggle and this strife, they're not really there for him. They're sleeping. Right after that, as the soldiers get there, now we want to give credit where credit's due. I mean, Peter pulls out a sword, cuts a guy's ear off, looks like he's ready to stand, and like he, just like he told Jesus, I'm not leaving you. But Jesus heals the guy's ear. He corrects Peter, says if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then, then Peter turns and goes. And then he kind of tries to stay close where he can listen. But then that leads to him having to deny Christ three times when the people say, oh, you're one of them, aren't you? So everybody leaves him. But you know, I think that's part of the point, is that Jesus is doing this. It's not Jesus' disciples doing this. And the things that Jesus is accomplishing here, he's doing it alone. His disciples weren't going to be with him through this. They weren't weren't going to be there and helping him in any way. He really is doing it alone. In fact, even when he gets up on the cross, what is one of the things that he says on the cross? He makes eight statements. One of them is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He even had to be abandoned by the Father. He had to, in himself, bear our sins and his own body on the tree. So it was very much in this context of abandonment that he purchases our eternal life. And then we also see, as we've already mentioned, the denial that Peter would deny him before those 
So Christ is he's, he's in a context where he's being hunted by these people. He's, he's betrayed by somebody close to him. He's, he's abandoned by the rest of the people close to him. Peter, usually the first outspoken, would be one that would go so far as to deny him. And Jesus knew it would be so. And he willingly went through all of that for us. You know, that's, a, that's an amazing gift. Christ, as he was born into this world, came into this world for a purpose. And that purpose was on the other end. The purpose was to die on that cross for us and to rise again from the dead and give us victory over sin and death in our life to give us that resurrection from the dead. And that is truly an amazing gift when we look at the the context that it was given in. When we look at Jesus Christ's gift, when we look at the context that He gave it in, the things that He was willing to suffer and to go through all to purchase our salvation, that's, that's an incredible love. That's an amazing kind of love that God has shed abroad on this world and offered to us through His Son. Well, not only do we see the context that the gift was given in, but we also see that there's an emphasis through this chapter on this gift. The first thing that I'd like to point out that emphasizes this gift is the schedule. It's kind of ironic because uh, there are times in Jesus' ministry when the religious leaders wanted to put Him to death. There's one time when they were going to take Him and throw Him off a cliff. There's another time they were going to stone Him. And He would get away through the crowd or or whatever, and, and He would get away. There's also time in His ministry when He would move from down in the southern part, down around Jerusalem in that area. He would move up to Capernaum. And that was kind of a real trade route, but kind of mixed Jewish and Gentile. And then He would even leave from there and go up into Caesarea Philippi, which is a more remote place to spend mainly training His disciples. And it indicates in the Gospels and in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen it in our study previously, that part of the reason that Jesus left from the more populated area to withdraw the more remote is that He knew that things were heating up with the religious leaders and it wasn't His time yet. It wasn't time yet, but it was going to, it was going to be forced to a time. It was going to come to a time premature if He stayed in the area. So He withdrew to these other areas. But as we look at this, passage, Jesus now, if you look at verse 18, He says, now it's My time. It's My time. Now, He's doing that in conjunction with the Passover, having the Passover feast, but He's not just talking about time for dinner. You see, the Passover feast pointed back to when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, and they offered up this Passover lamb that protected them from the death angel when they came over Egypt in the last plague that God brought through Moses. And the Bible says that Jesus is our Passover. Now it was time. He's going to sit sit down with His disciples, celebrate that Passover dinner, and then He's going to go and be that Passover sacrifice for us. So now this this is when God wants this to happen. This is God's timing. Now, the the thing that I just really love about this is look at verses 4 and 5. It says, that the religious leaders plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill Him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they're going to get rid of Jesus, but they don't want the feast. Many, many people travel from all over the places, make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so they don't want all these huge crowds. Not only that, the Roman authorities are on alert during holidays in Israel. Because if you're going to have a riot, if, if Israel, who does not want to be under Roman bondage, 
If they're going to get stirred up to revolt, it's probably going to be at one of these festivities. The Roman armies had built on the side of the temple, up on one corner of it, they built a fortress up there called the Fortress Antonia that had soldiers in the fortress. And at the fortress, at the top of the wall height, they could view what's going on in the temple below. That's why, like later on in the Apostle Paul's ministry, when he's in Jerusalem in the temple and people decide they're going to stone him for preaching about Christ, all of a sudden, boom, down the stairs, here come the soldiers. Because something exciting is going on. We've got to squelch it before it gets any bigger. They come down, they take Paul, they arrest Paul because he's at the center of it. And then they're going to determine what's going on. But you see, that's for the whole purpose of that. Rome had established a fortress up on the corner of the temple so they could overlook all that stuff. So they do not want to deal with this during the festivities. They want to wait until the feast is over. Pilgrims go home. Rome relaxes. A little more stealth. And they're pretty wise in thinking that way. But you know what the problem is? This is God's timing. They don't get to pick. (laughs) They're going to end up doing exactly what God wants them to do. They don't want it during the festivities. Let's do it after the festivities. God says it's the fullness of time. This is the time when it's going to happen. You know, throughout the Bible, we see that about God's timing with the events of Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, there was a specific time when God wanted to bring His Son into the world. And He took care of everything. He made the, made the announcements to the shepherds through the angels. He even controlled the the, the stars to, to get the wise men on their way and all the, all those things. God orchestrated all of it because He wanted that to happen right at a certain time. And He fulfilled many prophecies in doing it. It's the same with the end of Christ's life. Christ had an appointed time, an appointed day, His time to come and lay down His life for us. And it really didn't matter what the people were putting Him to death were planning. God made it happen when He wanted it to happen. He would use a betrayer to find a time where it was stealth. And remember, at that supper, even Jesus told him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so Jesus even picked the time to send him to go deliver him. And then he went out into the garden where he would be arrested. He orchestrated that timing. It speaks to the deliberateness of the gift. Jesus would tell them, he says, don't you think that at any time I could ask my father and he'd send over 12 legions, which a legion is 6,000 soldiers. I could send, he'd send over 12 legions of angels to deliver me at any moment. But he wouldn't do that. His intent was to die on that cross for us, to give us this gift of eternal life. So we see it emphasized in the scheduling as we see the God's perfect timing is coming together. We also see it emphasized in this anointing that he experiences. Now this lady comes before him and she takes this perfume and she pours this on Jesus' head and begins to anoint him. And it's a costly perfume. You know what the disciples are thinking? They're thinking the same way a lot of us think. They're thinking, man, are you kidding? If that was sold and then we took that money and fed the poor, what could we accomplish with it? You know, it's kind of like I was thinking like that the other day, but I wasn't thinking it in a, in a religious sense. I was thinking it in a political sense. They were talking about how much money comes in to support all these politicians' campaigns. And I thought, man, if you took every politician's campaign and scrapped it, we could pay off the deficit with all that money that's given toward the campaigns. So I was thinking kind of practical like that. But you know what? With, with Christ here, 
she comes to anoint his head and she's, she's making this amazing sacrifice to give up that kind of an income to that, something that valuable and to take it and use it in one moment, one moment in time. And then it's gone. It was not a practical decision. It was a worshipful decision. Worship is not always practical. Worship is, worship is showing God where your heart is. And that doesn't always follow right down practical terms. But that's what she's doing. She's expressing her worship toward God. And it appears, it appears that she had a little better insight than the, the apostles did. Because the apostles cor- try to correct her. Jesus asks them to leave her alone. And he says, but she's done a beautiful thing for me. And so this investment that she's made has accomplished beauty. And she's anointed me for my burial. Now, I don't know if her actions caused an anointing for his burial or if that was actually even on her mind. It appears that possibly she had paid attention in some of those instances, maybe where the disciples had not, when Jesus would talk about his coming death and resurrection. We've seen him talk about his death and resurrection in three different occasions where he told his disciples, I'm going in and I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be crucified. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And it's like right over their head every time. And then they go back to talking about something more important, like who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, I wonder if maybe this lady in hearing about what Jesus had talked about, maybe she caught a hold of it better than the disciples did. And had a better understanding. And so I'm not certain if she completely understood her actions and and that it was a deliberate action to anoint his body for burial or if just the fact that she did those actions out of worship but it did serve the purpose, uh, her unbeknowingly, of anointing his body with oil. Nevertheless, Jesus points out that her actions in anointing him in this way do focus on the coming burial, in other words, the death that he was headed toward on that cross and his subsequent burial. So it emphasizes the gift that Jesus was given us as well. And then lastly, we have the ordinance. Jesus would sit down with that, at that Passover meal with the disciples. And as I said, Passover was taken from the time when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And remember, the, the last plague upon Pharaoh to get him to let his people go was that the death angel would come in. And he would destroy, he would kill all the firstborn in Egypt. But he told the children of Israel, uh, you will not suffer that if you do this. And so he told them to sacrifice a lamb that was a Passover lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the house and on the lintel over the top of the door. And smear it on the doorposts and then go inside and they were to cook the lamb and eat the lamb and, and they were supposed to cleanse out the leaven from the corners of their house, which is getting rid of the idea of getting rid of sin. And they were supposed to go through this Passover feast. And while they feasted that night and stayed in their homes and they were protected from this plague, the next morning all the firstborn of Egypt were dead and all the firstborn of Israel were alive. God had passed over them. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our Passover, that that Passover lamb was a picture of Christ, and that if we have Christ's blood on our doorposts, on our lintel, in other words, we have Christ's blood applied to our account, to our lives, then we also are passed over when the judgment of death comes upon us, and we have eternal life. And so Jesus sits down at that meal which is picturing, the whole meal is designed to picture Him 
and what he would accomplish for us. And then he takes the elements off the table at the Passover meal and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. And he takes the cup and he drinks it. He says, this is my blood that is shed for you. And so he gives them this whole ordinance that would be an ongoing ordinance that we continue to do today where we take and we remember back what Christ did for us as we're pointed forward towards his return and we celebrate the tremendous gift of eternal life that he has given to us. Well, that's really what this passage is about, is that gift of eternal life that Christ was in the middle of accomplishing it. So this Christmas season, as we, as we celebrate the things that surrounded the birth of Christ, we also recognize that we celebrate them because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. We recognize that at the very beginning, God had the end in mind. It was all together part of the same package. It was all wrapped up in the same boxes, all sitting under the same bow as our gift from God.